when we can explore all of these complexities of people's choices and the situations that they're in. And that makes a historical novel come to life, I think. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie, and that was art historian and author Dr. Laura Morelli. In our conversation, Dr. Morelli shares about how she came to write historical fiction. We discuss the intriguing characters she has created in her recent books, The Night Portrait and The Stolen Lady, and she gives a glimpse into her upcoming book that she's currently working on that deals with the evacuation of the Uffizi Gallery during World War II. Dr. Laura Morelli, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Would you start by describing uh, what drew you to art history and especially to the Italian Renaissance and then how that molded and, and shaped itself into your career now as a historical fiction writer? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm one of those writers who wanted to be a writer since the time she was very little. Um, I was really obsessed with books as a kid. My parents read to me constantly, and I, I just loved books. Um, but when I was a preteen, I had the great fortune and privilege to travel quite a bit. And I traveled to Europe, and I was just really smitten by all of these old world traditions, these monuments, these works of art, these Gothic cathedrals, these Italian Renaissance paintings that, that didn't exist in the United States. And I was aware of this whole history um, that went back many centuries before what we experienced in America. And so as I went on in school, I, I really became more and more fascinated with uh, with with art history, and I decided to pursue art history in, in graduate school. Eventually, I earned a PhD, and I started off on a career as an academic teaching art history at the college level. But, you know, um, as I went on in academia, sometimes I would find myself yawning in the back in the back row of, a, of an art history conference or listening to someone give a paper. And I thought, you know, something is really fundamentally wrong here because art history, I think, is the most fascinating topic in the world. And yet somehow we academics have found a way to make it dull and and boring and inaccessible. And I was also at the time at the same time finding. Finding, um, you know, that itch to uh, to write. I mean, I had always been a writer, loved writing and, and as I said, loved books. And so, um, you know, those two things sort of collided for me. And I eventually found my place in historical fiction, which I think is really where, where I'm supposed to be. And I, I'm very focused on stories that have to do with the history of art. You know, art history is really about stories and about people and um, conflicts and things that come up. And I think that art is, an, is a great way into a story. And um, so that, that combination of art history and historical fiction is really where I've found my niche. And the two most recent novels that you've done, The Night Portrait and The Stolen Lady, you've done other novels before, but not, I don't think, dual timelines like are featured in both of these. So I was curious about your decision to do that, but also the points of view that you chose to focus on for those. So we can take them one at a time, but I've also been kind of comparing, contrasting the two. Yeah, I mean, I love dual timeline stories and, you know, a historical story, I think they're they're really interesting. I mean, um, a lot of authors will write a dual timeline story that maybe the two timelines are separated by a generation or by you know somewhere. Um, you know, by 100 years, maybe, but it's not so common to find dual timeline stories that span 
500 years or more. And so both the Night Portrait and the Stolen Lady have two narratives that are separated by about 500 years. And, um, you know, when I was teaching art history in the classroom, um, you know, I always loved teaching the Art History 101 survey. And the reason was that I loved to see these connections between these vastly different times and places. You can often find really strange and fascinating similarities or connections across the centuries. And so I found that really um, compelling. For the night portrait, which focuses on Leonardo da Vinci's portrait of the lady with the ermine, um, it was just a natural kind of way into the story because the portrait itself had really a, quite an adventure over the centuries. First of all, it was uh, painted by Leonardo da Vinci in the late 1400s in Milan. And then during World War II, it was stolen by the Nazis. Now, at the time that it was painted, the uh, the the impetus for the the portrait was that this young lady in the portrait, her name is Cecilia Gallerani. She was uh, the favorite mistress of Ludovico Sforza, who was the de facto Duke of Milan. He was a a, a ruthless guy. He, he was not not the most uh, compassionate or friendly guy of the Italian Renaissance. And you know, we think about the Italian Renaissance as being a time of of great beauty and accomplishment. But it was also an extremely brutal time period. And Ludovico Sforza was one of these kind of despots of the time. So um, what fascinated me about this portrait is that it later fell into the hands of a very high-ranking Nazi officer who was the governor of Nazi-occupied Poland. So here we have this portrait that became an object of desire, really an object of obsession, um, in the hands of two very ruthless, powerful men separated by 500 years. And so that, for me, was the perfect kind of angle into the story. Um, now, in The Stolen Lady, which you mentioned, uh, which is a which follows the night portrait. It's not exactly a sequel. They, they're standalone books, but certainly you could read them kind of together because Leonardo da Vinci himself is a character in both stories. In that story, we follow Mona Lisa. Again, an, uh, a, just a, a portrait with an incredible journey over the centuries um, from the time that the portrait was painted around 1500 in Florence, Italy, until the time that the curators of the Louvre Museum in Paris pulled the painting off the wall crated it up and took it off with uh, several thousand other works of art into the French countryside to hide it from the Nazis. Um, the Nazis actually either stole or attempted to steal every known painting by Leonardo da Vinci. And you can imagine that the Mona Lisa was at the very top of their list. And so it was quite a cat and mouse game to keep this portrait out of their hands for the six years of the war. I had read, I don't even know if you'd say it's a rumor or if it's disputed history about whether a copy of the Mona Lisa had been shipped off to the countryside and the original was kept in the Louvre somewhere. I've, I've read different things. So since you are the expert on this, I was curious what you had heard and, and what was completely proven to be false, if anything. <laughs> You know, it's there. The Mona Lisa probably has more conspiracy theories around it than any other work of art in history. And it's so fascinating. I have a, an online seminar I teach called Secrets of the Mona Lisa, where we review some of these conspiracy theories. And some of them are ingenious, and some of the theories are, are just half baked, but they're all fascinating and they're all fun to explore. The other thing that complicates that is that there are many, many copies of the Mona Lisa and many copies that were executed in the 16th and the 17th centuries. And so often a painting will come 
um, up. It will appear in someone's collection and people will say, oh, my goodness, I have this Mona Lisa, quote unquote. Um, you know, one just sold this week at Christie's in Paris for just over 200,000 euro. And it was a 17th century French copy, very close to the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. So um, as far as we know, the Louvre that is um, in in the, the painting that's in the Louvre today is actually the same one that's always been there that came out of Leonardo da Vinci's um, studio at the, the time of his death in 1518. Uh, but there have been so many different theories and, and conspiracy theories about, um, about the Mona Lisa. You may know also that the Mona Lisa was actually stolen in 1911. Um, and it's just incredible for us to imagine today this, uh, this contractor who was uh, charged with um, creating some kind of uh, coverings, security coverings for some of the paintings, one day walked into the gallery where the Mona Lisa was hiding and actually took it off the wall and walked out the door. <laughs> it's just an amazing, an amazing story. I mean, we can't imagine something like that happening today, right? <laughs> yes. Well, and uh, for that theft, am I right in thinking that his intention was that it had been stolen in his mind. It had been stolen from his country and he was returning it. Absolutely. So the, the man's name is, uh, is Vincenzo Perugia. He was an Italian citizen living in Paris and, as I mentioned, a contractor for the Louvre. And when he was caught two years after stealing the painting, he said that his motivation for taking it was that he was trying to restitute it to Italy uh, where it belonged. And perhaps he didn't realize that it was Leonardo da Vinci himself who actually took the painting over the Alps from Italy to France toward the end of his life. Um, he managed to get himself in the good graces of the King of France as a 60-something-year-old man. He, I, I can only imagine this this image of him traveling over the Alps with the Mona Lisa and several other paintings in his possession, probably in a in a cart or on muleback, um, carrying these pictures over the Alps. And, uh, you know, it would have been a, considered quite an elderly gentleman at that time in his life. And he ended up at the uh, the court of France. And that's how the painting ended up in the royal collection and eventually in the Louvre. So Vincenzo Perugia probably didn't realize that, that, that the painting had been in, uh, in, in Paris for, for many, many, many years. Well, I had thought of that when uh, I believe there was a reference you make to the nefarious means by which some of the works are in the Louvre and in many other museums for that matter. It's interesting that there was that complication of thinking there were nefarious means going on for the Mona Lisa, but in fact not. Right. <laughs> Which brings me to uh, the, the point of view in The Stolen Lady of Bellina, the handmaiden to the subject uh, of Leonardo's painting, Mona Lisa. Uh, how did you decide to take the perspective of the lady's maid to uh, Lisa, as opposed to Lisa herself? So that's a good question. You know, when we look back at, um, at, at history, and especially in the Italian Renaissance, often uh, the higher the status of a woman, the fewer choices that she had. And uh, that may seem a little counterintuitive, but, you know, a woman of Lisa Giardini's status and, uh, and Lisa Giardini, if you're not familiar with her, is the, she's the, uh, the subject of the Mona Lisa to the best of our, our knowledge. She was the wife of a prosperous cloth merchant in Florence around the turn of the 16th century. And a woman in her position would have been expected to uh, be at home much of the time um, working on needlework. She would have uh, visited friends in her same social class. She would have done a lot of charitable works. Um, but she, her, her world was relatively circumscribed. A servant, on the other hand, um, had was able to move in much bigger 
um, circles, if you can, uh, if I could say it like that, they could be in the market, they could be in Lisa's bedroom, they could be in Leonardo da Vinci's studio, they could be in the visitor's uh, corridor at the the local monastery, they could be um, at a a meeting, a political meeting that was secret, Um, they could be at all kinds of different places that a woman of Lisa's status couldn't be. And so um, by imagining Belina as the, the protagonist of this Renaissance storyline, um, it allows me to uh, share with the reader a lot more information about what's going on behind the scenes. And so I love a servant character for that reason. And the the other thing I loved about I loved about writing Belina is that she was able to, you know, to explore some of the political controversies that were happening at the time. And she was she's a little bit of a gullible character and she gets involved with a group that is um, anti Medici. The Medici had just been expelled from Florence at this at that time. And she gets herself um, in over her head a little bit. <laughs> the the scenes uh, with her and dealing with the bonfire of the vanities that were going on at that time was so very tangible and and uh, thought-provoking. So I, I think that was a surprise for me that I was going to get that out of reading this book. So thank you for that, because I, I think it's like giving such a, a good context for the whole world within which this painting emerged. Thank you. You know, the Bonfire of the Vanities is a historical event um, which has fascinated me for a long time. And if you're not familiar with it, it was, um, you know, shortly after the the Medici were expulsed from from Florence and uh, Gerolamo Savonarola, who was a fire and brimstone preacher, um, sort of rose very rapidly to power. And um, he was exhorting Florentines to rid themselves of all of their earthly goods, their their luxurious clothing, their um, their luxuries in their homes, whether it be dishware or silks um, or paintings or sculptures and books and other works of art. And many Florentines assembled in the squares and threw all of their luxuries onto the fire. And you know, to to imagine the mindset of someone who was willing to throw something, you know, a, a, a something very precious onto the flames is something that fascinated me as a historical novelist. You know, what was that mindset like? What led up to that moment? And so that's, those are some of the things that I wanted to explore and poor Belina was the perfect victim. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. I, and I had, also recently, uh, I have not had the opportunity yet to read The Gondola Maker, also a book by you. And yet, uh, in another interview, you make reference to the opening scene with a gondola burning for an act of justice. I wondered if you could just give like a, a snippet um, of the footnote that inspired that and and maybe a taste for that book. Yes. So The Gondola Maker is a story that um, takes place. It's set in 16th century Venice inside of a boatyard where gondolas are handmade. And it's really a story about um, a gondola maker and his troubled relationship with his son, who is uh, the, the supposed heir to this boatyard. But the son has other plans. And um, so it's a little bit of a torturous relationship between the, the the father and the son and the pressure to to carry on this torch of tradition to the next generation. So the gondola maker opens, as you mentioned, with uh, a gondola burning. And this was an image that came to me through a footnote in a scholarly article. And this is really super nerdy, but, <laughs> but this is often how I find really interesting and juicy scenes is when I'm doing this scholarly research and reading, um, you know, articles or books, often scholars will put the really interesting juicy bits in the footnote because it's sort of a, oh, and by the way, <laughs> this really happened. <laughs> and so in one of these, these by the way, footnotes, um, there was a reference to um, a gondola burning that took place um, in Venice around the turn of the 16th century. And what happened, it's kind of a long story 
story, but to make a long story short, um, they were punishing um, a gondolier for having thrown um, a stone at another gondola, which happened to be carrying a foreign ambassador inside the, the covered the uh, passenger compartment. So needless to say, the ambassador was none too happy about this. And uh, they burned the gondola and expelled the gondolier from, from the city. And so, you know, a gondola burning is just a... It's a singularly Venetian act of justice, right? It would not happen anywhere else. And so it, I thought it was a wonderful way to begin the book because it sets you right into the mindset of, of 16th century Venice. Going back to the night portrait, Edith and Cecilia, and there are some male points of view also, but for those two women, um, what, were, what were you trying to represent? Edith, to me, is representing a lot of the German people who may have found themselves in a compromising position that they were put into by the Third Reich. Yeah, so um, with the two, there, there are two male and two female points of view view in the night portrait. And one of the female points of view is Cecilia Gallerani. She is the subject of Leonardo da Vinci's beautiful portrait of the lady with the ermine. She's only about 15 or 16 at the time that Leonardo da Vinci paints her. And so um, like Lisa Giardini, Cecilia's choices in life are relatively circumscribed. I mean, she comes from a, a family of modest means, but her father has a um, a job working uh, as a petitioner at the court of Milan. And so she has a little bit of access there that she might not have had otherwise. And her parents are in the process of shipping her off to a convent in, in Milan when somehow she manages to catch the eye of Ludovico Sforza. And we don't know exactly how that happened. And so that was a place where I could imagine as a historical novelist how that might have come to pass. And so with Cecilia, you know, I thought a lot about what kinds of choices um, a young lady like that would have had in the 1490s. She has a choice of going to the convent or um, being a mistress. And then after she's been a mistress and has been, you know, then sent away because Ludovico Sforza never kept his mistresses around for very long, then what, right? So what are her choices after that? So I imagine a, a, a strong-willed young woman who perhaps has reasons not to want to go to the convent and is trying to kind of assert her own um choices and her own will in this very tough circumscri circumscribed um, situation. Um, now, Edith in the 20th century also finds herself in a really tough situation. She is a conservator at a uh, museum and she's um, She's an introvert. She works in this um, conservation studio in the basement She's of the museum. She's very happy with all of her little quiet projects when she is conscripted into this massive campaign to strip works of art from across the continent of Europe under the Nazis. And with Edith, you know, I think the question is really what was that like to be the one task to steal a priceless portrait by Leonardo da Vinci. And when we look at the, the entirety of art looting during World War II, the thing that always surprises me and just takes my breath away is the scale of it. It was such a huge effort, and there were so many art professionals who were conscripted into that effort and really had no choice. And they were people like myself. They were art history professors. They were art museum professionals, curators, conservators. They were um, art critics. And, um, you know, they were going along about their business when they got swept up in this crazy mission to strip the, the continent of all of its most priceless works of art. 
and bring them to Linz, Austria, where uh, Adolf Hitler was planning for a gigantic museum to showcase all the masterpieces of the world. And, um, you know, so I just imagined for Edith's character, what would that be like to be going about your business and then be pulled into this thing that was so much larger than yourself? Yeah. And and you've given a, a face to the butcher of Poland, and, and she has constant contact with this man. Comparing the stolen lady, I think it's more of a generic face of the Reich, whereas in Edith's situation, you've put the meat and bones on, I think, a character from the Nazi history that a lot of people might not have been fully aware of. Yes, and it's it's amazing. You know, I went back and looked at the Nuremberg Trials um, transcripts, and Hans Frank, who is um, this, this Nazi um, officer who you mentioned, he was later called the Butcher of Poland, uh, when, when he ended up back in Munich at the end of the war and was arrested by the allies, the lady with the ermine was one of the only things left in his personal possession. And in the the trials, he claimed that he did everything in his power to save these works of art, you know, at the same time that he was held responsible for the deaths of millions of, of innocent people. So it just really takes your breath away when you realize that. And that, uh, plays off the the perspective of um, the other gentleman who is in the point of view, uh, Dominique, who uh, assists the Monuments Men and his grappling with this. And I think it's perhaps also um, with Edith that, you know, the value of life and what are we really doing here? We're trying to save art instead of trying to do bigger picture help in a, in a terrible situation. And so that I think you've called that out so beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, th- I think that anyone involved in working with art in a, in, a, in a war must ask themselves these questions of the value of art versus the value of a human life. And, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to look back and, and look at all of the individual decisions and actions that people took in wartime to protect works of art and, you know, the, the danger that they put themselves in um, to do so for, the, for us, for the future of humanity. And so I, I find that really, really incredible. I'd read a review from one of your readers. They made a point that you made Edith, despite her complicity, a likable character, and they compared it with a book I've now have on my list to read, but I haven't yet, um, The Woman Who Heard Color. I don't know if you've read that book. No, I'll have to look for it. It's from the 90s, I believe, by Kelly Jones. The reviewer says that the Edith character for you in that book is Hannah for for Kelly Jones and that he hated Hannah, but he loved Edith. So I was (laughs) like, oh, that's very interesting because in the middle of the book, I was starting to question you had a choice, you could have walked away. But yet for her character, you have given her this redeeming point that she becomes basically an informant at the end, which is beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think that, um, you know, the best bad guys in, in books are not all, they're not all bad. And the best good guys are not all good. I mean, we are complicated human beings. We all, you know, make um, selfish decisions and we we all think we're doing you know something good I mean even um, you know the worst villains have some rationale <laughs> for what they're doing even if it's despicable and so I think some of the best novels really have have characters that that where we see all those shades of gray. And so, you know, that was one of the things that I wanted to try to explore with Edith is, you know, she's not a bad guy necessarily, you know, so what are, how do we balance those, um, those decisions and situations that she's put in, because that's where you start to see people's true colors. When you were outlining both of these dual timelines, I was curious about your outline process, and I've heard it that the most helpful and interesting way I've heard it described is as really a brainstorming exercise, and everything in your outline won't always make it into your novel. And I was curious what um, was the case for you. Yeah, I'm a big outliner, and you know, every uh, author has a different way of 
putting together a book. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think to if you ask 10 authors how they outline or how they put together a book, you'll get t- 10 completely different answers. Um, I'm a very analytical person, and I like to see the structure of a book visually before I start putting words on the page. So I do create a fairly detailed outline uh, plot of what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I know the beginning, I know the end, and I know some of the major plot points along the way. Um, And so I, I start with that always, but it, it always morphs and changes as I go along. I mean, 100,000 words is a lot of words and you start to really explore and things come to you along the way and and um, characters take on a life of their own and they, they take you off into a different direction than you thought when you started. Um, so definitely it's a combination of kind of, you know, plotting it out ahead of time, but then also being flexible enough to... Um, change gears if necessary. I mean, I always compare writing historical fiction to putting together one of those puzzles that has thousands of pieces in it. You know, if you if you were to take a, a box with the 3,000 pieces in it and you were to, you know, chuck half of the pieces in the trash and then and then sit down you would start and you would say okay I'm going to start with the edge pieces I see a corner I see a mouth or an eye I can put that together you start to put together what you can recognize and then you're left with all these gaps and historical fiction is like that you you put together the timelines and the facts and the research and then you're left with all of these holes that you you need to fill in and and and, uh, and make up you know in my in my art history classroom whenever a student asks me um, a question that I don't know the answer to I always say well I don't know the answer but I'll be happy to make something up in these situations. So it's a combination of, you know, of, of plotting and facts and, and imagination. Would you have any advice for writers who are wanting to become historical fiction authors? And the, the middle ground is often the most murky and discouraging. So if you have any encouraging thoughts for them. Yeah, you know, I think two things. Um, one is just keep going. Um, you know, it's, it's a long game. A career as an author is a very long game and you have to absolutely love it to the point where, um, you know, you have to write, you, you don't really have a choice and you have to just keep going. Um, and so that's, that's one, you know, we're in an age right now where we have more opportunities than ever before. I often see a lot of authors who, feel disempowered. And I would say change, you know, do what you can to change that mindset because we are empowered with a lot more tools and opportunities than we've ever had before. Um, You know, from the craft standpoint, I would say read, read, read. And if you want to write historical fiction, really become immersed in, in historical fiction. I mean, I read seven days a week. I read primarily historical fiction, although I think it's very useful to read outside the genre as well. But, you know, read with the eye of a craftsperson. You know, how is the book put together? How, what's the structure like? I always scrutinize the table of contents and, um, you know, try to see sort of the skeleton of the book. Uh, look for, you know, how is the author doing this? If they're pulling you down under the surface and really immersing you in this world, how are they doing that? You know, what did, what uh, literary techniques are they using? You know, what sometimes I like to get to the middle of a book and then go back to the first chapter to say, to see what was foreshadowed from the beginning, you know, and sometimes a really accomplished author is going to plant some seeds in the very first chapter that are going to come to fruition later. And it's fun to go back and look to see, okay, that's what they did to let me know. To, you know, they left some breadcrumbs there for me to follow in the story. So, so, you know, read with the eye of a craftsperson, because I think it really helps your, you know, a, a, an author really is sort of like a craftsperson. I think of myself sort of like a carpenter, you know, <laughs> nailing together this thing. And um, so really observing the way that other people do it is super helpful. Were there certain books that uh, inspired you when you decided, OK, I am going to just immerse myself in writing historical fiction? 
I, I have so many different um, authors that I love. Um, I read, I, I love um, Tracy Chevalier, who's written a few books about uh, that are art related. I love uh, Geraldine Brooks's stories. Uh, Ken Follett is one I love. I think, you know, so many people love Pillars of the Earth, which was written in the 80s and is still a classic. And, you know, you think about that book, um, you know, I, I spent years studying medieval buildings and looking at, at medieval architecture and the Pillars of the Earth, if you're not familiar with it, is about the construction of a cathedral in medieval England. And um, he talks a lot about um you know, Gothic architecture, but as you're reading, you, you don't really, that's not what you're focused on. It's you're immersed there in that world. And, but you want to keep turning the pages because you want to find out what happened to that guy on the horse in the woods, you know, and what's going to happen to him next. And so, you know, it's the great, it's the mark of a great historical novelist who can kind of paint that scenery and make you feel like you're there, but keep you turning the pages because you want to find out you care about the characters and you want to know what happens next. Um, so that's one of my favorite books. I love um, all of Umberto Eco's books. I think they're fantastic. Uh, I just read Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, which I highly recommend. Um, it just her sensory writing is fantastic. Um, I like uh, Karen Maitland. Um, she's another English author. Um, those are some of my favorites. The resources that you might recommend for writers, I was going to start with saying your website is a great resource. And you mentioned before your academy. And I had the opportunity to listen to one of the courses on a Da Vinci portrait, uh, Ginevra. Yes, yes, there is a there's a lecture there about Ginevra da Vinci, who was a young lady who sat for Leonardo's very first portrait that we that survives that we know about. <laughs> yes, you you give such tantalizing details about the reverse of the painting and the backstory. Who is the person that commissioned this? So highly recommend that. But if you would describe a little bit about your academy, as well as some other resources on your website or other resources you'd recommend for writers. Yes, absolutely. So um, my website is lauramorelli.com. And if you go to lauramorelli.com slash learn, you will see some of my online art history courses. Um, I discovered some years ago that there was um, a population of people out there who loved art history as I do, but maybe had no interest um, uh, in going back to school. Maybe they studied art history as a younger person and, um, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to go back and, and write papers and take tests and pay high tuition and all of that, but they, they still want to learn about the history of art. And so I've really had a blast with it because it's, it's allowed me as a teacher and, and, and my students to all do what we want to do, which is really just learn about the works of art and explore them. And during the pandemic, I've actually been doing virtual visits for my students, which has been a lot of fun. I've been um, collaborating with my colleagues in Italy to do um, some virtual visits to museums and archaeological sites and and it's been absolutely fantastic for me. Um, I've enjoyed it so much. My students have enjoyed it because they've gotten to travel vicariously to Italy at a time when they couldn't travel. And, um, and I think it's been great for my colleagues, too, because, um, you know, they, they went for so um, you know, my colleagues have taken us into a museum and it's empty. And so it, you know, when do you get a chance to be in a museum all by yourself as a, a little girl, that was a dream of mine <laughs> to be in a museum all by myself. And so we, we've had that experience multiple times now, which has been really fantastic. So if you're interested in signing up, um, it's at lauramorelli.com slash learn. Then as far as any other resources that you might recommend, for um, specifically for research resources or craft resources or uh, I would say both any books or websites that you've found particularly helpful as well as elements that you've incorporated that you think give a, um, a an immediacy to the era that you're going for. Yeah, so um, I always, in terms of research, you know, there's it really depends a lot on the topic and the era, but um, there's 
you know, there's something to be said for looking at art from the period. Maybe you're not writing a a historical novel that uh, centers around art, but certainly looking at art from the period can be um, extremely helpful. And I always love those books that, um, that teach you more about daily life in the period. Um, Those are always a lot of fun. You know, there's always books about uh, daily life in the Roman era or daily life in Tudor England or, you know, daily life in in, uh, Japan in the 19th century or whatever your your time and place is, you'll find books like that. And that's those are great for really picking up on those sensory details to imagine a little bit more about, um, you know, what I, I think historical fiction readers come to the genre to to immerse themselves in the past and know what what did it feel like to be there what were they looking at what did it smell like what were the, what was the food what, what did it taste like and um so those are those are things that i think if you really go to some length to to figure out what those sensory details are for your time and place that will really pay off in a historical novel um in terms of writing, I mean, there's so many great craft books. And, you know, I think that becoming an accomplished writer is something that is a bit like golf. It's just a lifelong <laughs> learning experience. You can can keep going and keep going. And Zar is a writer. Some people um, are great at dialogue. Other people are great at plotting. Um, some people are you know, great at writing emotion. And so I think figuring out what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are is important. And then, you know, go find those books and online courses that help you focus on those less strong areas. Um, and, and, uh, so that you can build your, your skill in that, in that area. You know, I, early on when I started writing historical fiction, I started doing, um, courses and reading more on dialogue because that was something that, um, didn't come naturally to me at the beginning as a novelist, you know, writing a nonfiction book, which I had read, written several nonfiction books before I turned to uh, fiction. So, you know, that dialogue was something that I really had to learn. It was a steep learning curve. And for historical fiction, it can be tricky. Uh, you certainly want to sound authentic. You don't want to sound like a 21st century person living in in some time period in the past. And yet, at the same time, um, if you were to make yourself sound like someone living in 12th century Ireland, no one would understand what the heck you were saying. And so you have to to kind of bridge this tricky gap between, you know, not sounding anachronistic, but at the same time, um, you know, being true to the the period. And, uh, you know, so, so that was something that I worked on, but figure out whatever it is that you need to get up to speed on, and then you can dive deep. And there's so many great books um, for writers about these different aspects of the craft. Other guests on the podcast have touched on survivor bias for works that are no longer with us, didn't make it through the ages. Uh, With your background in art history, I was curious if there were any pieces that you have read about or seen reference to that you think have gone with little attention, but perhaps they should be uh, more in our in our consciousness. Yeah, it's such a good question. And um, gosh, there's so many. I mean, I, you know, if there's so many that are that have gone missing, or that we have a little bit of documentation for, but maybe not very much. And I, I certainly think that it would be mind boggling for artists of the past to come to the 21st century and see what we consider to be their masterpieces. You know, I, I think if Leonardo da Vinci were to walk into the Louvre today and step into the gallery where his Mona Lisa is hanging, you know, he would either faint or, you know, or laugh or shrug and say, what in the world is going on with these, you know, thousands of people standing in front of this picture? Because um, I believe, you know, having spent a long time researching Leonardo da Vinci, that the Mona Lisa was sort of a bread and butter type portrait for him. I mean, you know, a portrait of a merchant's wife was uh, the type of project that would 
put bread on the table and, you know, then you would move on. And he was obsessed with these grand hydraulic and engineering projects and military designs and uh, grand, you know, projects to divert rivers and things like that. And I I really think he thought he was going to make his mark in that arena, you know, and, um, you know, maybe there were some flying machines that survived for a little bit and then were destroyed that would be fascinating if we had them today. Uh, we know that that he created um, a colossal uh, horse uh, for the Duke of Milan that was later destroyed by the French uh, not too long after it was made. And so, you know, perhaps we would have had one of these really fascinating engineering projects that I'm sure Leonardo would have considered, um, you know, more elevated, I guess, you know, or or in higher esteem in his own mind, at least. And yet here we are looking at the face of of Lisa Giardini and, and we consider it the masterpiece of his life. And so we certainly see things differently, I, I think. Um, you know, another example is the um, this portrait by Raphael. It's a a portrait of an unknown man that was in the the possession of of this noble Polish family, the same family that owned the lady with the ermine. And it was stolen along with the lady with the ermine. And somewhere between Poland and Germany, it disappeared. And for uh, for all of the years since World War II, people have been on the hunt for it. Um, I believe that it's still out there somewhere. I hope that it'll be discovered in my lifetime. But, you know, we have pictures of it. We know about it. But, um, you know, it's sort of just gone. And, you know, we uh, scholars don't really pay as much attention to it anymore as they do other works by Raphael. So there are all kinds of interesting questions about survivor bias. That, you know, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's a fascinating area. And what is it about that portrait that makes you think that it is still there? So there have been um, so many almost found it (laughs) type, you know, moments where people have, um, some people said that they they saw it in someone's house in Bavaria, or uh, they think they know, you know, who has it. Um, I think that there have been a lot of close calls, and I won't be surprised if it turns up in someone's house or in a in an unusual place. Um, I, I think it's probably somewhere in Germany, and it'll be fascinating if it if it pops up at some point. You know, we we read these news stories about things that all of a sudden appear out of nowhere from, you know, that that went missing during World War II. At the same time, it is really amazing that that most of the works of art that were displaced during World War II went back to where they were. I mean, I find that amazing that that so much did return unscathed when you think about the scale of, um, of uh, in which these things were moved. The historical justice uh, aspect of bringing these kinds of facts, even about Leonardo da Vinci's life that you were referencing um, just now about like what his real true goals were for being seen as a master of these war machines as opposed to ladies' portraits. And you definitely hone in on that in your writing. I was curious what you did think about facilitating historical justice with books like uh, The Night Portrait. Yeah, thank you. I think it is that's an interesting perspective and I think for the for the night portrait when I think about Leonardo da Vinci's lady with the ermine, I do think that it is sort of a historical justice to go back and look at the whole story because works of art they they might mean different things to an artist, to the subject, to the patron and then to later audiences and sometimes in the case of the the lady with the ermine, the Mona Lisa, and many others, these works of art go on amazing journeys after they've been created. And so I think to go back and look at the whole story from beginning to end is um, sort of a a form of justice, of doing the, 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 the work of art justice. Do you have any upcoming projects that you would want to share a bit about? Right now, I am working on a uh, another book about World War II art 
um, theft. It's set in Florence in uh, between 1943 and 1945. And part of it has to do with the evacuation of the Uffizi galleries. And so it's not a dual timeline, but there are two points of view. And I'm really having a lot of fun with it. It's a, it's a great project. It's so interesting because I've I've heard you say that you really didn't want to focus on World War II and then you start to uh, explore it and it's just blossoming. Yeah, you know, I think that um, my hesitation with going into World War II was partly just, you know, whenever I've looked, watched documentaries or read books, I think historically and traditionally they talk about um, you know these are stories of uh, of men and epic battles and military history and um, you know I guess I didn't see moments of troops you know and and these more traditional war stories but I think that there's actually a lot of very interesting individual stories from World War II, and particularly when it comes to these art objects. Uh, Was there a seed of inspiration for the Uffizi story that you could share? I'll tell you what has um, fascinated me about this story. You know, you look at all of the different countries of Europe where all of this moving of, of art was going on in World War II. And then you look at Italy and you realize that things were a little different in Italy because for, you know, a certain period of time, the Italians were allied with the Nazis. And so the way that the art was evacuated and handled and managed at the beginning of the war was quite different than the way that things played out elsewhere. And then the way in which, um, you know, the works of art were transported and and moved around and returned was also different. And so, um, you know, things were not as black and white as you might think. You know, you you look at a World War II art theft story and you think, oh, it's black and white. It's the good guys are trying to save it and the bad guys are trying to steal it. But when you look at Italy, you realize that it's, it's not that black and white. It's actually every shade of gray because you had people who were um, allied with the fascist cause. You had these partisans in, in Italy. You had these um, superintendents who were trying their best to save the works of art that were in their jurisdictions. You know, for example, the superintendents of Tuscany or Umbria were responsible for the museums and the churches and the works of art in their little regions. They had their own agendas. And then you looked at the Germans that were working in Italy. Many of them were art historians who um, specialized in Italian subjects. They spoke Italian. They loved Italy. They had written books about Italian sculpture, and they were very sympathetic to um, to saving these and preserving these works of art, and they worked hard to do it. And so it's very gray. For this upcoming book, uh, will there be an element of historical justice in this, you think, as well, that's going to be in the theme? I think so. I think so. We might have to talk again once it comes out. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, it's been such a joy talking to you. I really appreciate it. Is there anything that I have not touched on that you wanted to bring up? No, I think I'm really amazed that you've done so much uh, due diligence and background reading. Thank you so much for reading my work. I I really appreciate it. And um, readers, thank you also for for picking up my books. You can learn more at lauramorelli.com. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about Dr. Morelli. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie. 
And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.